several years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to England, and uh, one of the first stops uh, that I had a chance to make was to a place called Bath, England. I don't know if you've ever been there, but uh, one of the stories of Bath, England is that it has uh, springs that go back to the first century. The Romans believed that these had healing powers and qualities, so people still travel to be there to this day. There are other places like Lourdes in France and Guadalupe and other places like that that in our world today, people believe that there are places, pools of water, bodies of water that have healing powers. I thought about all that as we come to the next message, the next encounter in our series in the Gospel of John. And I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. That's where we're going to be today. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. It blesses my heart to see so many Sundays when many of you are bringing Bibles. If you didn't bring one, please know we have ones right nearby. If you'd want to open it up and look at it, it's somewhere in the 700s, John 5 is. But we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 today. Now, if you haven't been with us, we're calling this series Encountering Christ. You can see the banners up here. The first one is really taking shape. And obviously, the next half of this series later this year will also be added to each Sunday as we make our way through John's Gospel. But the reason that we're studying John's gospel for 40 weeks together this year is because we believe that in this gospel there are amazing encounters that Jesus has with people that as we study them, not only will we learn how they encountered him, but also that it might open the door for us to encounter him today. And that's our prayer. That's what we're hoping will happen more often than we can count. And so today, uh, what I want you to notice before we look at this story about a man by the pool is the several observations if you're following along in the notes. The first is this, that this third miraculous sign, we've been talking about this, this third miraculous sign in the Gospel of John unleashes trouble for Jesus. This third miraculous sign unleashes trouble for Jesus. I list out to the right, chapter 5, verse 16, and I won't go into a lot of detail because we're going to actually come back to this next week when we unpack later chapter 5, but here's the big idea. Because Jesus did this on the Sabbath, both verse 9 and verse 16 indicate this, because Jesus did this miraculous thing on the Sabbath, he is going to get in trouble from the religious leaders that believed he broke the law. But in fact, he broke their traditions, and so they're mad about it. And they're going to give him grief, and they will follow him and oppose him till they see to it that he is crucified on the cross. But before this, they've been kind of hesitant. They've been kind of keeping it themselves. Now, this will open the door for him to be persecuted and opposed and dogged by people for the rest of his earthly time on earth. And so, I just want you to see that. And when we talk about miraculous signs, some of you remember that in the first few weeks, we pointed out from the miracle of the wedding in Cana that John uses a specific way of carrying us through the account of Jesus. He says that Jesus did many more than these, but I want to share these eight miraculous signs with you so that you can see that they point to Jesus being God's one and only son, and that by seeing those signs, you'll come to believe that Jesus is God's one and only son, and you'll find life in his name. Now, that's why he did it. But again, he stopped counting after the first two, and he's expecting us to count from here on out each one of these miraculous things that happens. So that's the first thing. Second, today, here's what I hope you see. As we study this passage, I hope that you notice 
one word in particular, and that's the word well. Well, and I'm not using that as a punctuation mark. Well, I'm talking about a well. And I know some of you are ready to say that's a deep subject, and oh, is it. And actually, what we're going to talk about today is the fact that this idea of what it means to be well, Jesus not only wants to coach us to a deeper faith, but he also wants to coach us to a deeper understanding of what it means to be well, to get well. You see, many times, friends, we come with some ideas about getting well that aren't wrong. They're just not adequate. They're just not complete. And what Jesus wants to do is to broaden that, to deepen that, to help us understand what it really looks like when a person gets well. Because he came to make that possible. And this guy comes to the pool with a whole idea of what it means to get well. Now, if you're following along in the notes, here's just a brief definition of the word well. It means to be healthy, whole, healed, cured. To be healthy, whole, healed, cured. It's such a difference when a person becomes more and more healthy. It's such a difference when families become healthy. It's such a difference when schools, businesses, teams, churches are healthy. And Jesus is interested in helping us to get well. That is part of the reason why he came to this world. Now, let me just show you a couple verses that talk about this. Deuteronomy 5, look at what it says. It says, oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. That means to reverence me, to respect me deeply, and keep all my commands always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. God's desire is that it, things might go well with us. The second verse that I've listed out to the right is 3 John chapter 1, verse 2. Maybe you've seen this verse before. This is just a prayer. It's just something that this John writes to a friend, but he says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. This desire is that God has come to make things better, to make things weller. And he really does want us to know what it means to be well. But here's one more thing before we study this passage that I want you just to know in case uh, you haven't seen this before. And that is this, that after 38 years of being unwell, that's 38 years. I don't know where you were 38 years ago. I know some of you weren't 38 years ago yet. But 38 years is a long, long, long time. And after 38 years of being unwell, this man is hoping, he's putting his hopes in a pool. P-O-O-L. That's why he's there at this place called the Pool of Bethesda we're going to read about. Now, before we actually read the scripture, I just want to show you a picture. Some of you have been to Jerusalem. Some of you have been to Israel. So you may have seen this. If you look at the very top, and I don't know how well you can see in the back there, but at the top, there's three little towers that stick up near the left there, and that's the edge of the temple. This pool that we're going to read about today was excavated and rediscovered by archaeologists in the 1960s. If you want to find it today, it's called St. Anne's Church. But these two pools in the center of the picture had colonnades around them with these different roofs hanging over. And so the idea was is that many, many people, a great many people, the Bible says, came and parked and camped and tried to get near there in the hopes that this water would have healing powers. 
And again, we're going to see today that some of the Bible is actually put in footnotes because, again, it's not necessarily for certain whether or not um, this section was added later or was written by John. The idea is this, is that they wanted to make sure we understand is that the superstition about these two pools is that every once in a while when they would bubble up, it was believed by some that it was an angel stirring the waters. And therefore, the first person to be able to get in would be able to be healed. Now picture this guy after 38 years of being there. It's his hope that he's gonna, it's going to be his lucky day, that he's going to be able to somehow get in this pool. And this is where he encounters Jesus. I don't know if you've had friends or ever been in a situation yourself where you've gone through chronic weakness, chronic difficulty, chronic pain, but it changes you. It causes you to be changed mentally, emotionally, relationally, spiritually. It affects everything in your life. And this guy is now in a situation where when he encounters Jesus, he is in for the rocket ride of his life. And so I want to just pray that God will help us in this encounter to encounter Jesus. Would you pray with me? Now, Lord, what do you want to do? I believe this morning that you want to deepen our understanding of what it would look like for us to be well. I believe there's a lot of confusion and controversy around this subject, so I pray that you would somehow guide my heart and my lips, my mind as I speak, that I might represent you graciously, humbly, but also leave room for the mysteries that surround this subject. And I pray that in the end, all of us will hunger for you to make us well. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, if you'll follow along with me, what I want to do is read through this passage. And if you're new with us, I often include, so does Steve or Brian, some of the verses that we can actually read out loud together. And the reason we include them is not so you don't have to bring your Bible, but so that we can read them out loud together. So when we get to verse 6, I'm going to do my best to remember to ask you to read with me. We get to verse 8, I'll try and do the same. But if you would follow along, I'm going to read the first six verses. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We, a few weeks ago, had a map, so we saw where he was going in these different places. Now he's back in Jerusalem, which is down south. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid. The word there for invalid does not necessarily mean paralyzed. It just means that there was some kind of weakness. The idea here is not so much about the medical details as much as about the fact this person's been sick for a long time and been disabled for a long time. For 38 years, in fact. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition, I think I just read too far. Hey, would you like to read verse 6 with me? Let's read it together. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, if you're following along in the notes, just a couple observations about these opening verses. First, Notice this, Jesus sees 
and seeks out this man. Jesus sees and seeks out this man. Why is that so important? We've been studying different encounters, and we've noticed that each of them is unique. But in this situation, unlike the royal official that we studied back a few weeks ago, at the end of chapter 4, who sought Jesus out, now Jesus sees this man out of the entire crowd. He sees him. And that word for seeing means he saw him as he really is. He didn't just like look past him. He saw this guy. And also, it says he sought him out. The royal official sought Jesus out. Jesus seeks this guy out. And friends, I don't know about you, but that is the good news of the gospel. The Bible says is that while we were still sinners, Christ came and died on our behalf. That he saw us in our condition. He saw us in our unwellness. And he came and he gave himself. He sought us out. Not just once, but he is one who seeks us out again and again. We'll see that more in just a minute. But I am so grateful for this quality. I've listed out to the right Genesis 16. There was a story about a lady named Hagar who was up against it. She was having some really rough times because her uh, master, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had kicked her out or she had run away because she was being mistreated. And uh, the Bible says she was in a tough way and there God met her in the desert. And she was so moved by that experience that she named the place, you are the God who sees me. Somebody needs to hear me talking about this today. You are the God who sees me. And I I wonder sometimes if you've been going through things so long that you don't even think God cares anymore. You don't think he sees you. You feel invisible or you feel hopeless. This man met Jesus because Jesus met him. He sought him out. Praise God. Next thing I want you to see is that Jesus asked a searching question and the man blames. Jesus asked a searching question and the man blames. He makes excuses. He deflects attention from the real question. What's the searching question, friends? Did you see it there in verse 6 there in that gray box? It's just six words. What is it? Let's say it together. Do you want to get well? Now, some of us would be... Like, if you're this guy, you're going, duh. I mean, it doesn't feel like a searching question. It feels like, what are you talking about? I'm at this pool. But Jesus, again, he knows that so many times we live life on the surface. We say all the right things. But sometimes where our heart is is a completely different place. And so Jesus says to this guy, do you want to get well? Now, I would expect the guy to say, sure. But notice what he says. Verse 7, you're following along. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm still trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, I think a simple yes or no would have done okay, don't you? Do you want to get well? Yes or no? No, this guy goes, you don't understand. It's not going to happen because every time I try, I can't. No one's here to help me. I mean, if that was his big concern, why didn't he say, you mean you'd help me? 
But instead, this guy, something's going on here, friends. I don't know if you can sense it, but he's blaming. He's making excuses. This guy, somewhere along the line, became a victim. And he is acting like a victim rather than a healthy person. And again, this is going on in spades in our culture today. More and more people, instead of taking responsibility, are blaming, deflecting, saying it's their fault. I couldn't help it. They did it. That kind of stuff. It's not that bad. All those different kinds of things. And you know what, friends? Here's the truth. We've all done it, and it's been going on since the garden. Look at Genesis 3, and look at the searching questions that get asked. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why are they doing that, friends? Adam and Eve have just eaten of the fruit that they were told not to eat from, even though they could have eaten from every other place. They decide to go to the one place that God in his grace instructed them not to eat. And then it says, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He is the God who sees us and seeks us out. Where are you, Adam and Eve? Where are you? Adam answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? See, the Bible had said earlier, they were both naked and unashamed. They, they, they didn't have this incredible self-consciousness. There was this intimacy with God and with each other where they didn't necessarily have to be aware of that. And it says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Notice whose fault it is. Then the Lord God said to the, ser- the, the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, that a serpent deceived me and I ate. Wah, 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 wah. I mean, this is, not, this is not a healthy conversation, okay? This is blaming. This is like, wasn't my fault. And some of us have been parents and we see sinnerlings do this kind of stuff besides doing it ourselves. This kind of stuff goes on. And the question is, I want to ask you a question. Are they well? No. That is not a healthy relationship. That is not a healthy way to relate. And this guy was in a situation where he was not well. Not just physically. There was a whole lot more to the layers of his life. And Jesus is searching those out. Now let me read verses 8 through 13. Then Jesus said to him, You know what I told you I was going to ask you to read with me again? Let's try it. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Verse 9, At once the man was cured. That same word for well, by the way, in the Greek language. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. Is is this guy blaming again? It wasn't my fault. This other guy told me to do it. It's not untrue. It's just take responsibility, man. Verse 12. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Now, if you're following along, Jesus instantly heals and then gives actions to take. With a word, Jesus instantly heals, then gives actions to take. Now, I can't get into this as much in this message as I might be able to 
another time, but here's the situation. In your life groups, those of you that are in life groups, I've written some questions about this, but I want to ask you a question, even if you're not in a life group. What healed this man? Was it his faith? Or was it because of what he did? Or was it because Jesus spoke the word and the man was healed instantly? The whole subject of healing is incredibly controversial. I have brothers and sisters on both sides of the explanation about some of these things, and I have great respect for people from all sides on this. But let me just say that there is no evidence this man exhibited faith. And there are at least seven or eight other passages that indicate that Jesus sometimes, by his own sovereign choosing, healed people before they were interested or before they believed. The Bible also says there are times when people were attributed uh, credit for believing in him, and he said, your faith has healed you. Go and be well. There were other times when it wasn't that person at all, but friends would bring a person, and he would say, when he saw their faith, he said, you're well. Now, this is messy, because again, if we're not careful, we can reduce even the teaching of the Bible down to a formula. Where if you have this faith and you don't have any sin and you make a good confession with your mouth, you'll always be healed because it's always, always, always on this side of heaven, God's will to be healed physically. And friends, again, the elders have struggled with this. This is not what we teach. We teach that Jesus is more than able because of what he did on the cross. Something was opened and released a supernatural power where he still does heal today. He is still able to do amazing things in healing. And we pray for that, we seek it, we ask him for that, but we also leave room for the mysteries and how to live with the mysteries that still exist in the Bible. Let me just mention a few. And again, in your life groups, you can look at these later. Why is it when Jacob wrestled with the angel of God that God did bless him, but he walked away with a limp because God put his hip out of joint? I don't know how to explain that. That's a little mysterious. Why is it that Elisha, one of the Old Testament prophets, who by far and away did the most miracles of any other prophet in the Old Testament, even though he raised the dead, that he died from an illness, the Bible tells us. Why is it that people still today say that the reason why Job experienced what he did is because he feared it, rather than acknowledging that chapter 1 and 2 show us that the curtain pulled back is that God allowed it. Not because Job was sinning or didn't have enough faith, he was righteous, but God had a bigger plan for Job learning what it meant to be well at an even deeper level. Here's the, some people would say, well, that's Old Testament, and here's a couple messy ones. Why is it? And again, people say, I know for sure it couldn't have been a physical thorn. Why is it that Paul was allowed to have a thorn and God didn't take it away? And again, I've heard all the teaching on this to try and explain that away. I find it absolutely unsatisfactory. Along with that, why is it that Paul, who actually did heal people, many people, instead of healing his younger colleague Timothy, actually instructed him in 1 Timothy 5.23 to drink a little wine for his stomach for medicinal purposes rather than telling him to memorize certain Bible verses or stop on by and I'll heal you. Friends, these are just things that are difficult to deal with, and I'm not trying to mock. I'm trying to say, here's the truth. After this many years of being a pastor and having a mom who has been chronically sick for years and whose faith and life is vital, 
These are mysterious things. And we want to be a church that believes in Jesus' unbelievable power. The elders pray for healing. And if you're seeking healing, the elders would be glad to pray for that with you. And we've seen God heal sometimes. But we have also seen times where we had to literally just say, we have done all we can to trust Jesus. We have tried to make sure everything is as it should be. And there are still some mysteries. And friends, this is part of what I want to say just so that we don't take this text and automatically just use it uncarefully. So uh, notice this, that it says that he gave him some actual actions to do. Do you notice what they were? Get up, pick up, and walk. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but here's, here's this mat. Um, he had a mat, it says, or some kind of mattress by him. And so each day, he would have laid on this. Now, when Jesus tells him to get up, and he stands up, an incredible thing happens. He says, pick up your mat and walk. As if to say, don't stay in this place. Don't hope in this kind of healing here at the pool anymore. I'm taking care of that, and I want you to walk into a new chapter. Don't leave the door open to go back. Leave it. Be done with that and move into the new life that I have for you. It's an incredible practical word, and some of us need to hear that when we think about being well. And so here's another idea that I want you to see in verse 14, if you're following along in the text. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. In other words, he's referring to his physical healing. But stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. If you're following along in the notes, again, Jesus seeks him out and warns, stop sinning or... Now, this is an amazing thing right here. Jesus sought him out the first time, but now in the temple area that I pointed out to you earlier, he finds him and he says, okay, you're well again. I was the one that healed you, but now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This can be explained several different ways. Let me just mention a couple. Some people believe that Jesus is saying that the reason why this guy was sick for 38 years is because of his sin. And that whenever there's sickness, it's because of sin or a lack of belief. And friends, again, the Bible says is that's not always the case. Later in John chapter 9, when the disciples ask why a man was born blind, was it his sin or the sin of his parents? Jesus says, neither. But this man was born, the glory of God might be shown in his life. And it shows us that sometimes we are sick because of things we've done that aren't what God wants us to do. I think all of us can point to ways we've not taken care of our bodies or the way that we may have harbored unforgiveness or the the way we may have dealt with anger poorly and things like that that may cause physical problems. But sometimes it's more mysterious than that. And the Bible says is that you can't just automatically attribute those kind of things that way. And so Jesus, I believe, is doing this. He's saying, look, I helped you be physically well, but there's more to wellness than just getting better physically. And you know, in the United States, this is important for us to hear. We place so much emphasis on the body. We place so much emphasis on how we feel, our health-wise, that sometimes we have to be careful that even though we're whole people, we don't overemphasize one to the exclusion of the other's. And the truth is, is that Jesus was much, much more interested in this guy's spirit 
than just his body, which was going to pass away. He was interested in both. But he wanted to make sure this guy knew what was the most important. He says, stop sinning. You know what sin is? Sin is when you and I are turned in on ourselves. That's what sin does to us. It turns us inward and turns us in on my life, my desires, what I think, how I see myself. And wellness turns us outward. Whenever you're in a healthy home, you can tell because people aren't just thinking about themselves. They're thinking about each other. Whenever you're part of something healthy, and Jesus is interested in helping this guy, stop being turned out on yourself. Stop trying to do life without me. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Wow, that's important, that warning. And when you see that, do you hear that as a loving warning? Because that's what it is. The last thing I want you to see in verse 15 is that it says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. He told them it was Jesus who made him well. Can I ask you a question? Why did he do that? I don't know if he did it because he was afraid of the religious leaders and getting in trouble with them, which we could all relate to, or if deep down he was just ratting Jesus out because it was part of the ongoing pattern of his life. But something's not right there. It leaves you wondering, what's wrong with this guy? And so here's the question I have there in that last part of this section. Does he take Jesus and his warnings seriously or not? Does this guy ever take Jesus seriously, his warnings seriously or not? Can I just tell you that the New Testament is moot on that point? We never know what this guy does. We don't know if he ever stops sinning and gets better. We don't know if he ever comes to believe in Jesus. Everything would get us to believe that he's ungrateful, that he's irresponsible, that he's a blamer, and that he's not taking responsibility for his life. And in a way, no matter how physically well he is, Something is completely unwell with this guy. And so Jesus asked this searching question, do you want to get well? And I, for one, have found that question to be absolutely penetrating in my life. And I want to talk about that in the closing moments that we have here. I want to ask you three questions, and they're related to something. Let me explain. Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, talks about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, so much stuff was released. Yes, physical healing was released, but also spiritual healing, relational healing, all kinds of things flow from the cross and what Jesus Christ has now opened up by his death and resurrection. And it is the hope that we live in and the hope that we preach, friends. But when that happened, he said that a lot of times, though, you'll see Christians that they believe and they receive that initial message, but then a whole bunch of their life never really gets changed. It never really gets transformed. They carry the same patterns and habits that they got in their families and that have been carried on for generations. So what gives? How can people be so unwell and yet be saved and quote-unquote going to heaven? And here's the truth. The mystery of it is, is that when you and I, no matter how lost we are, put our trust in what Jesus Christ paid for on our behalf on the cross with his shed blood. The Bible says at that moment, an exchange takes place where we now get a new identity and we become people that are saved once and for all. 
But the Bible says is that that is true, but also that Jesus is interested in not just saving us once like that, but now saving us in so many ways from ourselves, saving us from unwellness of spirit, saving us from this unwellness mentally, emotionally, and relationally. And he's going to go to work on that. And we learn this in Philippians 2. Look at these verses. I love these verses when we studied them a while back. Therefore, my dear friends, As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation. In other words, it doesn't say work for. It says work out the salvation God's already given you once for all. You cannot lose that, but work it out with fear and trembling. That means a humble, not a cocky attitude. That means that you and I continue to stay teachable. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. This is being written to believers. And this is what God is talking about, making us more and more weller. He wants us to be well. He wants to continue working that out. I don't know about you, but I still see this. Some of you really like my illustrations about how it works out in my family. I'm still being saved, even though I am saved. He is still saving me from all kinds of patterns and habits and practices. And oh, I thank him for his faithfulness to do that. But man, I am still not well in the ultimate sense yet. Can anybody relate? So here's the deal. Here's the thing I want you to see is that Dallas Willard says that Jesus Christ provides a way of spiritual transformation. He calls it vim, V-I-M, so that we can have vim and vigor in our faith. And for each letter of vim, V-I-M, it means something. First, he gives us a vision for how we can become well. He gives us a vision for how life can be different. Second, he gives us, uh, he tells us that it's important that we have an intention to be changed and be humble and teachable enough to let Jesus do whatever he wants to do to change us. And the third thing is that he gives us the means to do that. He has given us resources and tools and the body of Christ and people. And so this is really important. So let me just ask you these three questions that first talk about vision, then talk about intention, then talk about means. First, here's the question. Do I believe Jesus sees and wants it to go well with me? Do, I, do you believe that Jesus sees you and that he sees all the way through every layer of you? He knows exactly whether you're well or not. And he comes today and says, do you know I can see you and do you believe that I want it to go well with you, that I'm really committed to helping you become well. I love Deuteronomy 8.16. It's here on the screen. It says this, He gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known, to humble and to test you, so that in the end it might go well with you. He's committed to a process of making us well. The question is, the next question is, is it my intention to get well, or only if it doesn't cost me? Is it my intention to get well or only if it doesn't cost me? Over the years, I've seen people say, oh yeah, I want to get better. Oh yeah, but then everything they do proves they never really meant what they say they intended. And friends, you and I know the truth is that sometimes the reason why we do not change is not because Jesus can't change us, but because we have what I call a hate-love relationship with our unwellness. Some of you have heard about love-hate relationships. What I found about my unwellness is that sometimes the reason why I don't let Jesus change me is because, yes, I hate the things that I do, and I hate the damage they do, and I hate how uncomfortable they make me feel and how humiliated they make me feel. 
but I also, unfortunately, sometimes still love them enough that I don't want to let go of them. They're familiar to me. They're comfortable to me now, and I don't want to let go. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? Is it your intention? Because I'm looking to see if you really mean business when I take you through this process. The last question here in this section is, will I take the actions and use the resources Jesus offers? Remember, he gave the man something to do. He actually said, I want you to pick up your mat. I'm not going to do that for you. I want you to walk into this new future. I'll do it with you, but I'm not going to do it for you. And that was so important. And so the question is, what are some of the resources he gives us? Friends, it's unbelievable. He not only gives us his word, he gives us the help of his Holy Spirit. He gives us other believers. He gives us resources. The question is not, has he offered those? The question is, are we interested in using them? Do we really want to get well? Now, this morning, there's a man that's come to share his testimony. Someone in our own church family that for the last 20 years has been learning what it means to let Jesus make him well and weller. And I hope that you'll welcome John Voigt. In 1991, she finally found a counselor who recognized what it was that was destroying our marriage and home. On his good advice, she drew a line and was really not going to budge this time. I am grateful to her today that she found the strength to take this hard line with me. While I had been sinking more and more deeply into my addictions, my parents had gotten help and were doing much better. Today, in fact, my parents are awesome, and we have a whole different kind of relationship than we did During Thanksgiving of 1991, my family performed an intervention which led to my checking into a hospital for 30 days. It was there that the miracle happened. After 17 years of running from God and trying to be God, I was finally able to see for what it really was the ridiculous house of cards I had built for a life with my best thinking. At 37 years old, I was a very scared boy in a man's body, unequipped to be in a marriage relationship with a real woman. Much of my preparation for the marriage relationship involved women who were just pictures on a page. They did not prepare me well for the real thing. All of my relationships were sick ones. It was the only kind I knew how to do. I told God I I knew I was beaten and that I would do the best I knew how to do to let him be in charge from then on. The day after I checked out of the hospital, I was in church with my parents. The pastor taught from Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I was just beginning to learn how much better he knows the desires of my heart than I do. In verse 23, The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. Like a toddler, when I stumbled now, I would no longer have to fall headlong because he had my hand. God, <clears throat> God started sending help. It still amazes me today when I think about it. He sent men to be for me some of the things my father had not been able to be, and women to be things my mother had not been able to, <clears throat> to be. He put me with safe people where I could practice new skills. I began to stumble awkwardly through learning what I should have learned about healthy relationships many years before had I been paying attention, and I began to heal. My first wife did divorce me, 
and I do not blame her. The connection I had made with God and his church as a child began to pay off. I started taking my children to church every Sunday. I taught them how to pray. I explained to them that I go to AA meetings a lot because I don't ever want to scare them again. It took 15 years before my oldest daughter, Jessica, was willing to try again. But by the grace of God, we're friends again today. I'm very grateful that my children and my two stepdaughters want me to be a part of their lives today. God eventually trusted me with Susanna, next to my Savior, the joy of my life. We've been married 15 years. She joined me in working in Celebrate Recovery, a Christ-centered 12-step recovery ministry which meets every Monday night at Hope Church here in Springfield. She and I have been doing this together for 10 years. This has been a huge blessing in our lives and, and probably saved our marriage. About a week ago, it was 20 years since I had a drink of alcohol. This gift was, <clears throat> this gift was only possible because of a generous God. I work on my recovery each day, but just one day at a time. The reality is that there is always a lower bottom waiting for me that I could experience if I forget how bad the last one was. I tell my story to improve my chances that I won't have to go there again. I tell my story for two other reasons. It bears witness to a really unbelievable God who would sacrifice his son for me. I also tell it because I know, <clears throat> I know we all know there are many others, probably some of you, who need to find the kind of help that I found. Satan stole a lot from me and my family, and any part that I find myself playing in helping to free some of the prisoners that he holds today is just fine with me. Thank you. I love you. takes a lot of courage to share that, but that's what happens when Jesus helps you. And John's still on the way. He'd be the first to admit that, but I appreciate him telling that story and the hope of what Jesus, by his grace, can do in every one of our lives if we'll trust him. So here's the closing question, and you have to answer it. I can't answer it for you. What's Jesus telling me to stop and start doing with him? What's Jesus telling me to stop and start doing with him? Can I just mention some possibilities? Last Sunday, as Steve spoke on Thomas, do you remember Jesus' words to Thomas? Stop doubting and start believing in me. Don't let any excuses, don't let anything hinder you. Whatever you need to do to get to a place where you stop living in unbelief, you stop doubting who I am, Stop that and start believing in me because it can open up a whole new world for you. Jesus says, I promise you. Some of us here today may need to stop an addiction like John. And here's the question for you. If you're in an addictive pattern and you've been in denial and blame and making excuses, honestly, as lovingly as I can say, when is it going to stop? When is it going to stop? Because until you get to the place where you're willing to stop sinning and start trusting in what Jesus can do and letting him work with you, you are going to lose more than you'll ever gain, even though it may be more familiar, more comfortable. 
Some of us say, well, I don't have a problem with addictions like that, thank heavens, but some of us have a really big problem with our mouth. And he's saying to us, stop using your mouth like that and let me start working in your heart. Stop letting anger and unforgiveness fester in your heart. Start trusting me and stepping out in courage, moving towards reconciliation and, if possible, healing in that relationship. Friends, there's so many things Jesus might be saying, but this morning, here's my prayer, is that we'll listen to him and we'll understand that he wants even more than we do for us to be well. So I'm going to say a prayer, and uh, we'll have our team down front. John will be down front. If any of you want to talk to him afterwards or thank him, but let me pray that God will show us what it might be today. Oh, Lord, I thank you that you come and you seek us out. You see us. You know us. You want us to be well. You want it to go well with us instead of the way it's been going. And I pray, oh, Lord, that we'll listen to you. I pray that if we need physical healing, we'll seek you for physical healing. I pray that if we need emotional or relational or spiritual healing, that we'll seek you. And then show us how to respond after that. But help us to look to you instead of a pool or another person first. Help us to look to you first, and then you'll guide us with the rest. Oh, God, help us to get well. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you.